Welcome back to Game Study Study Buddies, your one-stop shop for everything you might want to know about the academic field of game studies? What? At least the, the parts of it we've read? What? Would you believe that I forgot what the opening thing was <laughs> in the middle of that? And I recovered? We're reading the books of game studies in publication order. We're reading the books of game studies in game studies is order. <laughs> Uh, I'm Cameron, and with me, as always, is Michael. That's me. Hey, you know how many uh, episodes of this we've done? 67, by my count. That's wild. Yeah. That's a lot of episodes. That's like, what, we'll say on average they're two hours long? Some, you know, yeah, some longer, something some like shorter, that. But yeah. on average, we're probably right at two hours. That's, that's uh, let me do some numbers here. Uh, 65 and 65 is 130. Okay, and then plus four is uh, 134. It's 134 hours on average of stuff. How many days is that? That's like four days. Yeah. It's if a you long just time, that's a long time. You know the 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 way I'm saying this, it sounds like we're going to do a book about time in this mm-hmm. episode. We're not. No, nope. that's not what this episode's about. This episode's uh, about uh, as listeners to the previous episode will know. It's on a book called Ready Player One, Latinx Masculinities and Stereotypes in Video Games. It's by Carlos Gabriel Kelly Gonzalez. And um, I'd never read it before. You read this before, Michael. (laughs) Yeah, I traveled through time and and read it before it came out uh, last fall. Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty pretty new. I don't know. You might have bought it. I think I came across this because I, I think I pitched this to you at the end of the last episode. I can't remember if I left that in the episode or uh, cut it, but um, I pitched it to you, and I I think I couldn't remember why I knew about the book, but I believe that Kashana Gray was like uh, promoing it, and Kashana Gray has um, uh, blurbed the back of the book. Mm-hmm. So, um, so I think that's how I come to know about it, or came to know about it. That's how I come to know about it, <laughs> know about this damn old book. We're reading it here, y'all. Uh, but that's how I came to learn about it. And uh, obviously, I'd not read it before either, because it's pretty new. Yep. It's fun. Yep. Uh, what do we know about Carlos Gabriel Kelly Gonzalez, Michael? Uh, so he has a PhD in Latinx studies and video games from The Ohio State University, acquired in 2022. Uh, and at the time of the writing and publication of this was a postdoctoral associate at Rice University. He also has a collection of poetry whose title I forgot to write down. Um, mm, it's called Wounds, Fragments, Derelict. There we right go. In front of me. There Just we go. In front of me. So a collection of poetry that I think predates this book. Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess, I guess he also has an MFA according to his Twitter profile. Um, oh, interesting. Yeah. That's not in the, uh, that's not in the, about the author thing. Yeah. Um, slight, slight revision here. Uh, the PhD is in English with an emphasis in those areas. Yeah. I see. Interesting. Yeah. Okay. Um, I'm just pulling that from the about the author. I got it like right here in front of me, but, but I do think like, uh, in the online bio I saw, like the Latinx studies and video game stuff is leaned on pretty heavily. Oh, yes. Okay. All right. So we're working through versions. There we go. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. Yeah. That's right. <laughs> Look, every, everyone is a, a work of art in motion. Uh-huh. You know? No one is complete. You know who I saw see, say that 
on a on a on a video on the internet? Uh, who? Take a guess. Who's someone you would never believe would say something like that? Kind of like you know, <clears throat> lightly profound. Uh, was it Germa? Did Germa say that? No, it was Adam Sandler. But that's like basically, <laughs> I mean, you know, the Germa of our generation. Yeah, that's that is true. He is kind of the Germa <laughs> of our generation. <laughs> For millennia, for for perfectly middle of the road millennials, uh-huh. Adam Sandler is our germa, <laughs> like a person doing a bit but kind of not doing a bit, you mm-hmm. know, mm-hmm. like really leaning in. When uh, we're doing the Sandler cast, when we're doing that, oh, uh, I <laughs> we can't get started on this. I watched Click a couple weeks ago. Oh no, um, boy, that was a film. Uh, well, we got to get through Michael on Michael, which is, of uh-huh. course, your podcast about Michael Bay. And then we got to get through Cameron on Cameron, which is me on the works of James Cameron. Yeah. And I- then we'll have to do Adam on Adam. <laughs> and we have to find someone that yeah. we know named Adam. <laughs> Coming soon. The new the new uh, friend, Adam. Uh, it'll be uh, it'll be. And I actually thought about this one. I thought this would be good. You know, the movie uh, Walker. That's like the pseudo surrealist Western. Oh, no. I mean, I va- I'm, I haven't seen it. I'm vaguely aware of it. You you know, let me let me pull the director for you. Um, it's from 87. It is a Alex Cox film. The guy who did uh, Repo Man. Oh, OK. Um, I thought we could do Michael on Michael, Cameron on Cameron and then Walker on Walker, which would just be Austin <laughs> talking about the film Walker. <laughs> But those are other shows that we're talking about. Yes, those are the shows where we don't talk about game studies, such as yeah. Ready Player One. <laughs> mm-hmm. That's right. And uh, that's what we're talking about today. Got a fun little cover on it. It does. Got a lot going on. Got, got a little Latinx uh, person on it, surrounded by video game accoutrement, mm-hmm. and with like a cactus paddle with a one on it. Kind of like a, like a, like a wow a World of Warcraft uh, exclamation point kind of yeah. hanging over the head there. Mm-hmm. Got a VR headset on and holding a controller. It's like all it's gamer, gamer <laughs> stuff. Yeah. Cover designed by Lee McDonald. And this is from the University of Arizona Press. Uh, mm-hmm. Just by the yeah, way. In a new series, right? It's like launching a new series. Yeah, I believe. Yeah. Uh, uh, the Latinx pop culture series edited by Frederick Luis Aldama and Arturo J. Aldama. Joe Aldama's. Oh my yeah. gosh. <laughs> but yeah, brand new, brand new book, 2023. Um, oh, interesting. There's a uh the copyright page where it says, like, hey, this is published by uh-huh. Arizona. It's got a land acknowledgement in it. Let me flip to that. Yeah. Oh. Today Arizona is home to 22 federally recognized tribes, with Tucson being home to the Odoham and Yaki. Uh, committed to diversity and inclusion, the university strives to build sustainable relationships with sovereign native nations and indigenous communities through education offerings, partnerships, and community service. That's in the 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 copyright page. So I don't think I've ever seen that before. Huh. Yeah, I don't think yeah. I have either. Well, just an inter- interesting little, little fact. Mm. Um, we we got to dive into this book, Michael. Yeah, we do. Uh, so... Uh, I don't know, big picture, like, how would we describe this? I would say, like, it, it says at the beginning that this is 
am I, I don't want to like misrepresent him in case uh, he gives it in a slightly more modulated form, but mm-hmm. uh, this is essentially like the first book that's just kind of like trying to do an overview of like representations of Latinx people and in particular like Latinx masculinities in video games. Like that is, yes. that is the mm-hmm. mission statement. <laughs> yeah, that's the pitch. Um, and that's, you know, I don't, I don't, I think that pre-record we talked about this and I think I, we just totally missed it a second ago. Um, uh, a postdoc at Rice and maybe at Delaware right now. Oh, I think we're, yeah. we, we had a little bit of confusion about exactly where uh, Kelly Gonzalez is right now in terms of employment, but um, at a, uh, what do you call it? Uh, at the University of Delaware, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, bio. Sorry, mm-hmm. I couldn't come up with that word here. It says... Yeah, uh, his forthcoming book, so this is written slightly before, obviously, the book came out. Uh, his forthcoming book, Ready Player One, Latinx Masculinities and Stereotypes in Video Games, comes out November 14th, 2023, with University of Arizona Press, and will be the first book to deploy U.S. Latinx studies via border and performance theory to interrogate AAA action-adventure video games, right? So uh, part of the promo showing up in in um, a bio here. Um, and, uh, so yeah, I think that's right. There is another, cause I think I said the same thing in the last episode or maybe when I pitched it to you, um, I'm not familiar with Philippe Penix, Penny Penix, sorry if I'm getting that wrong, Tadson, it's a hyphenated last name, uh, that book, Cultural Code, Video Games in Latin America, mm-hmm. uh, which is out from the MIT press. I actually looked it up, um, uh, because it gets cited a few times in this book, uh, and it's open access. So if you want to. If, if a book called Cultural Code, Video Games in Latin America sounds interesting to you, you can go to the MIT Press website and just download it, read it right now if you want to. Uh, but um, uh, uh, that author has blurbed the book as well. So I think the distinction here is the U.S.-focused part because Cultural Code, the the Penix Tadson book, mm-hmm. again, apologies, um, that book is written from an international kind of um, Latin studies perspective. So it like pings on brazil and central america and some other places too Mm -hmm. yeah yeah so i think the distinction is the american part but yeah i think it is the first kind of dedicated book about the latinx and american experience um just diving into questions of broadly representation Mm -hmm. and that's evident from from the beginning right so the introduction is called mi vida fronteriza video games as borders uh and it sort of sets the pattern for how the next couple chapters are going to work, which is uh, a lot of uh, uh, Kelly Gonzalez, like walking through like personal experience or personal history, right? Like his, uh, so like the introduction is uh, begins with an anecdote, uh, memories of playing a uh, game called uh, Loteria as a child, uh, also called in here Mexican bingo. It actually, it seems to be related to, uh, the game that Calois talks about in Man Playing Games, I think. Huh. That I remember I remember like I remember this specifically because it's he describes it. It's like a kind of picture-based form of bingo, mm-hmm. but he is describing it in that book in such a weird orthogonal way that it was impossible to figure out what was going on. Uh and I remember asking during that episode, it's like, has anyone followed up on this? Like I don't really know what he's talking about. But um I remembered it specifically this like interesting fusion of like bingo mechanics, right? Someone's calling out a thing. Uh and other people have like a mat or a placard or something that they are like marking hits on. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so he begins talking about uh, with this this memory of uh, Loteria, and it seems like uh, the specific form that he and his uh, family played had like character cards like like stereotypes um so for instance like el borracho right like a, like a little cartoon character of a drunk on there um where's the other one there's one that's like soldado which would be a soldier i think uh yeah so yeah there's a big list of yes, kind of right right broad caricatures or stereotypes or character types right um and so we also get like background about Kelly Gonzalez himself. I think uh, he's the younger sibling in the family. Uh, uh, discusses uh, his his family uh, moved back and forth across the border a lot uh, when he was a child. He's from like Southern California, uh, and he says that uh, of the kids in the family, he was the one who grew up mostly in the U.S. It seems like the older sisters grew up in Mexico. Mm-hmm. Um. And so, uh, you know, talking about like that grounded experience and like the experience of moving back and forth with his family for, I think, his father's work. His father was an architect. Uh, and then the scene of playing this card game that is also predicated on uh, like various stereotypes, essentially. Right. Like this is this is uh, kind of the entree into the whole book that is to follow because it is going to be looking at when we move out of. Loteria, right? When we move out of uh, this like specific local game and we get into the world of AAA video games, how do uh, uh, certain stereotypes about Latinx people continue to circulate? And not only how do they continue to circulate, but like how are they uh, uh, created in the first place through this really complex cultural alignment between like the Latinx movement kind of in general in the United States and sort of like artistic movements and sort of like mm-hmm. representations of uh, uh, that, like Latinx artists have put out. Right. Um, and sort of narratives that become uh, uh, held up, right. As kind of exemplary. Uh, how does that sort of work its way back around into uh, feeding into the ways that like AAA game studios who are often uh, majority white and uh, in many cases, not even like, uh, you know, majority like working in the United States. Uh, mm-hmm. How how does that how do these sorts of stories nevertheless like end up in video games and influencing the ways that uh, Latinx people are depicted and in particular like Latinx masculinities? Yeah, the book is tracing um, in a couple different ways the way that just the modes of, of visual representation, right? Uh, how through the medium of video games do Latinx people come to be known, right? And coming to be known doesn't mean accurately, right? It doesn't right. mean good representation. Uh, you know, it, big, big quotation marks here because I do think we'll be talking about that. But um, pro- it doesn't mean proper representation. It doesn't mean a kind of attachment to the truth or the real complexity of people or anything like that. You know, uh, within video games, uh, representations of Latinx people are often just broad stereotypes. And um, Kelly Gonzalez really brings out some of the numbers that we have from the uh uh what the igda numbers is what we mm-hmm. have around like what are the dem- demographics of the games industry and um uh latinx people are just an incredibly small number um you know they are they are at the bottom end of the pie chart and so that that becomes evidence or 
um, a demonstration of a fact that you can also see through the representations themselves, which is that uh, Latinx people in video games are often broad stereotypes. If they're not broad stereotypes, they're often robbed of cultural specificity. So it's kind of one or the other across Mm -hmm. this book, right? Either Latinx people are just a visual element without any kind of attachment to any real culture or any specific set of cultures, right? Because there's lots of different cultural formations that come out of that. Uh, or um, they are so deeply stereotyped that they are lodged in a kind of um, what what Kelly Gonzalez calls the Anglo gaze, right? Mm-hmm. Or Anglo lens, I'm sorry, not gaze. The language of gaze is not used here, um, even though I think some of the argumentation kind of leans in that, that area. Uh, broadly across the book, I think Kelly Gonzalez is leaning really hard on um, kind of in, in a particular part of cultural studies, we might call like archetype theory. Right. Mm. So like the idea that racial representations of non-white people are categorized into kind of set categories. You know, if you're familiar with the the history of uh, blackness and representation on screen, you know, we can think about our kind of 1980s and 1990s cultural studies moment of thinking through uh, the Mammy, the Sapphire, you know, these Mm -hmm. kinds of of characters, the, the Sambo, that these are loaded cultural stereotypes that kind of come prepackaged and then they are inserted into these narratives and delimit the kind of roles that um, uh, black actors can play, right? You know, uh, mm-hmm. go watch Hollywood Shuffle. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. it's like, if you, if you want to know more about that, right? You know, there's, there's, a, there's a tight 90-minute comedy that like will hit you with every part of that. And what Kelly Gonzalez is saying is that, well, those that same kind of thing, and, and uh, he's working through his own um, genealogy here, right, uh, of people who have foc- focused on that for a number of years. He says, well, guess what? Same thing's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's a set of prepackaged identities for Latinx people to have within uh, visual representation. Video games just pull on those whole hog, and um, it puts them in a bad spot in terms of representing actual human beings in those game spaces. So one of the ones that comes up that we'll talk about later on is the the, the bandito character, right? The bandit, yeah. the criminal, mm-hmm. um, as a prepackaged, um, pre-existing Latinx stereotype. The Latin lover is another one. We'll see that one too. And there's a few others that show up sporadically, but I think those are the two primary ones we see. So mm-hmm. I would say that that is, you know, there's there's some... Um, citational apparatus that kind of gets that going, but that that is mostly the fundamental focus of this whole book is how do those appear? Uh, in what way do stereotypes appear? In what way does that uh, give people a place to negotiate their relationship with the text? And where does it rob them of the opportunity to negotiate their relationship with the text? I think mm-hmm. is is kind of what's going on across the whole book. Yeah. Uh, so some of this comes out of just to name it because it's a book that's important to the whole argument is uh, Christopher mm-hmm. Gonzalez, the book Permissible Narratives. This is where uh, Kelly Gonzalez draws a lot of his work on um, precisely where do these stereotypes come from, right? The idea of a permissible narrative is what are when we're thinking about like an ethnic group, the the like prepackaged roles that come uh, attendant to that, like you were just describing, Cameron. Mm-hmm. Um, right. So seeing that uh, often Latinx men are presented as criminals, drunkards or sidekicks and women are over sexualized. Uh, the other thing that's important here in the introduction uh, comes from a, a, a theorist named uh, Lorgia Garcia Pena. Uh, mm-hmm. And it is her argument about uh, borders as not things that are uh, necessarily out in the world. 
Um, but uh, borders are things that can become interior to people, particularly uh, people who have had to live uh, across, you know, geographic or national borders. Uh, they then carry within them the experience uh, of like, you know, whatever, whatever that border divides. Right. Uh, mm -hmm. That that division goes on to exist in them. So it's uh, again talking uh, or speaking to what you were saying, Cameron, like uh, as Latinx people play these video games, uh, where are they feeling the borders between their experience versus representations of uh, experience that's alleged to be, you know, something like their experience uh, uh people mm -hmm. like them? Uh, how do they recognize uh these permissible narratives, how do those narrative, how do they engage with them? How are they uh, foreclosing some ways of thinking, opening up others and, and so on and so forth? Um, so I think yeah, that's have you ever read any of her stuff. Of no, Garcia I have not. Pena's work. I have um, not. She wrote a book called Translating Blackness uh, hmm. a few years ago that that I read and really enjoyed. I've not read the the borders of Dominican Dominican Adad which is the the book that is being cited here, I think, the most. Mm -hmm. uh, but I really like that second book. I, pretty famous case. You probably have heard of this. She was denied tenure at Harvard mm -hmm. um, for the kind. It seemed like, I, I can't say with any specificity here, I only read the articles, right? Who can know? But it seemed like for the kind of work she was doing and the kind of um, uh, uh, advocacy she was was making for her students. Um she she did not receive tenure at Harvard and ultimately, you know, had to land at Princeton. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> As it <laughs> you know, sometimes you get the consolation prize. <laughs> but no, I mean, she does really, really excellent work. And I really enjoyed that. Uh, the, the, the one book of hers that I've read. So mm -hmm. um, if people find that that idea that Michael just talked about uh, interesting, I, I would go seek the book out because um, mm -hmm. I know that she writes about uh, uh, Afro Latinos. Right. That's kind of like the whole, whole mm -hmm. deal that she's interested in. Right. Yeah, so uh, then the first chapter is uh, Front Teresa Gaming and the Not-So-Radical Presence of Latinxes in AAA Games. And I should... Well, before oh. before we jump forward, can we can we say one more thing or talk about one more thing? Okay, yeah, absolutely. Can we talk about the style of the book a little bit? Uh, sure. What do you want to say? It's written in, in a way that I don't think most academic books are. Would, would yeah. you agree with that? Absolutely. Uh, and I don't know... Uh, I get the sense that... Uh, I mean, it's written very uh, casually and convivially, I guess, is mm -hmm. how I would yeah. describe it, yeah. right? Yeah, um, it is a. It feels like a person talking to you. Yeah, yeah, and it's filled like when I said that you know we we begin with kind of the personal narrative, and that's going to come up again throughout the book. Uh, I guess I probably should maybe place a little more weight on that, where it does feel mm -hmm. like even so. For instance, Amanda Cody, her book last episode uh, mm -hmm. had a. I don't. I don't even think we talked about this, but she had an anecdote in there where. Um, she asked for like an Xbox for Christmas or something one year. Mm -hmm. And no, then we her, did talk about it. Okay, right. Yeah. And you're right. And then her brother was like, Are you sure you don't want a Wii? For are you a sure girl? you didn't mean no, not even do you want. Are you sure you didn't mean a Wii? <laughs> yeah. are, are you so ignorant that you asked <laughs> for an Xbox when you meant a Wii? Right. That right. was the And she kind of reads that as a moment of like not purposeful, but implicit indirect misogyny, right? Right. Like, damn, damn, my own brother got me is the kind of way it's it's yeah. positioned. Right. And so like th this happens in academic books, right? It's not uncommon to see kind of the anecdotal evidence or sort of like the, the brief personal sketch. But I would say yeah. that there is much more of that going on in this book stylistically. Um, and when I found out from the uh, ending 
bio in the book or maybe it was mentioned at the beginning anyway when i Mm -hmm. found out that he was a that he also did a book of poetry i was like oh this makes sense right like because i yeah i I associate this type of um uh auto theoretical work almost uh more with uh, uh people working in like uh the weird intersections between uh like mfa and poetry uh in in the academy and Mm -hmm. uh kind of like identity paced uh uh culture right like uh, Mm -hmm. uh studies yeah because uh you know one of the things that we know about the history of academic work is that uh your personal experience in your life and the way that you experience things is like insufficient as evidence right um, not literally, but that the academia wants to say that that's insufficient. And lots of people from lots of different identity based um, arguments have made the claim that, well, no, actually, right? Like, yeah, that, that might actually uh, need to be in the work. So people have a context and understand the way that things hit and the way that things work. And we've always been very comfortable with that kind of thing coming from a universal neutral p- perspective, right? And the universal neutral perspective is red implicitly as white and implicitly as male, right? right? So so part of what's going on there is that style um and form are also part of the argument, mm-hmm. right? That that and for um Kelly Gonzalez, it doesn't necessarily I don't think it's ever textually said, right? But it seems pretty clear that the style of humor that appears in the book and the um uh, the anecdotal stuff, right? These pieces of play experience or whatever that that they're critical to understanding the perspective, and in these moments of of you know representational failure in these games, that that informs the kind of analysis that's happening, right? Mm-hmm. Because uh, ultimately, you know, he's a Latinx person who's playing these games and and reflecting on Latinx representation, and these things fall short quite often for him, and he's trying to give some kind of uh, legibility to that, right? And he does it through a couple different ways. One is the the player one, mm-hmm. right, of the of the title, which is the kind of border identity. And we'll talk a little bit more in more detail about that going forward. But that's a particular kind of um, cluster of relationships, right? And then there's what he what he calls player one, O N E. My my enunciation here is going to kill me. Juan J U A N one O N E, and player one is like, what is it like to sit and play the game? Right, right? the to get the kind of intended experience, and that's where some of the experiential stuff comes in. Of what is it like to sit and play the game and 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 think about it. And then there's also some some um, additional complication stuff going on in there. I will say that I think that. Like on one hand, I think this is a uh, really strong and gives a really good set of perspective, you know, or not even set of, but it gives a good set of, uh, it gives a good framework and a perspective to understand that perspective in, right? Like mm-hmm. you, you get where he's coming from, doing all that. I will say that there are so many parenthetical jokes over the course of this book that I, that at some points I did feel like it really got in the way. Yeah, um, it, it felt like a thing or a work couldn't be cited or an idea couldn't come up or a piece of commentary couldn't appear that did not have either a uh, parenthetical joke about it or a kind of flippant response that was attached to it. And like on one hand, I can tell that's part of the the humor of the thing and that's part of the readability of it. But also some of those places like flippant humor, I thought was 
if not inappropriate, because it, it, I don't, you know, it's it's not my book. You can do whatever you want in your own book, right? I, you know, I, I'm not the police on this. But it made light of some situations that actually might require a little bit more analysis. There, There's one that really kind of got me a little bit, which is, was about the Great Wall. Did you mm. notice this one? Yeah. Like, this is such a, like a specific and weird thing, right? But like, I'm in the world of media studies and game studies and all these kinds of things. And um, there's a little bit of a flippant remark of like, well, Matt Damon was in the movie The Great Wall. And that was obviously commentated on a lot a few years ago as like, this is a movie about ancient China. <laughs> Why mm-hmm. is Matt Damon here, right? Um, and I think Pedro Pascal's in that movie, too. Uh, and it got dunked on a lot when it when it came out. And that was kind of a common Twitter remark. Um, Mm -hmm. But also, like a lot of reporting was done on that, that that was a uh, that was done very tactically by the Chinese production company in order to make it a co-production to make a fundamentally Chinese film, a international hit. The the that he was not in the movie in order for like to save uh, ancient Chinese people. Right. Like narratively, he was in the movie in order to get Americans to watch the movie. Mm -hmm. Um, It was made as a bid to kind of lure us into it. And that's a little bit more complicated, right? That's that's not necessarily a thing that uh, being flippant about responds to because it was an opportunity and I think ultimately paid off as a place for the often censored, often difficult to get financed Chinese film industry to do something globally and on a global scale. And they were using American white actors in order to kind of uh, pull through that, right? Or to, to make a broader claim to... Uh, global national legibility. Now, I think the critique is still perfectly fine, which is like, well, why do Americans need to have Matt Damon in the movie to care about the Chinese film, right? Right. Uh, but I think also anyone who pays attention to cinema understands that why you have to make those negotiations because that's a huge part of the American moving going audience, right? Like, I don't think in in the abstract those people would have made those decisions. I think it was a really calculated and explicit one. And that comes up as just kind of a flippant remark of like, well, white guy showing up again and that's a hundred percent true and i understand where it's coming from but there are some places where i think that those more flippant remarks are disguising a much more complicated and much more interesting story about the the compromises that have to be made in contemporary blockbuster art these days whether it's in cinema or video games or whatever yeah no uh i i agree that the 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 humor i think works to the book's benefit but they're also just sometimes it does feel like just a little much. And I noticed also that the the Matt Damon one, that was also the one that I was like, well, actually, as I recall, something else was going on here. Um, and, and, you know, I actually went back to and I was like, I remember this being different or like, you know, I remember there being something about this. Right. And mm-hmm. then I went and read about it and I was like, oh, that was fascinating. You know, yeah. there, there's a really great Wall Street or maybe 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 Washington Post piece that like digs into the reasons behind it, uh, because it, and it begins precisely from the position of like, well, um, we sure are making fun of all this on Twitter t- this week, but then it like, does a long form, well-reported piece on it. And so maybe it's good in that way, too, right? Where that got me to be like, hey, hold on. Wait a minute. What is this? Mm-hmm. And I had to go look it up. And I'll be honest, didn't watch the movie. So, uh, you know, yeah. I'm not I'm not the great wall defender. Um, <laughs> That's Matt Damon. Imagine, like someone someone listening to this and just fuming the great wall defender, you know, in the, in, in the chat. They're so, yeah. so angry about it. Um, another thing that we've used several times, uh, but which gets uh, called out specifically in the book and noted, is the use of Latinx as opposed to, say, Hispanic or Latino, Latine, mm-hmm. uh, other terms that are in 
in the mix, um, there's a long kind of contemporary history around the term uh, Latinx. He digs into a little bit around uh, his own positionality here, right? That he is a, um, uh, you know, tall male who is Latinx, but uh, is light skinned, right? And, mm-hmm. and whiteness has a kind of um, impression upon his life in that way. And he talks about it a little bit in the thing. If you're curious about the use of the term Latinx and why that gets. Um, uh, deployed here and why we're saying it a bunch of times it's worth looking up if you've never um, checked that out before i would say still a, a slightly controversial term i don't think i'm it's out of pocket saying that um you know i i know several people who are uh proudly still hispanic specifically right uh or latinos um and uh, i think there's a lot of complication there and a lot of cultural negotiation going on in a lot of different ways kelly rodriguez is using latinx and so we're going to as well yeah so then chapter one, Fronterizo Gaming and the Not-So-Radical Presence of Latinxes in AAA Games. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, this begins with some uh, uh, personal narrative, right? Talking about growing up uh, in San Diego, but moving back and forth across the border. There's a lot of, uh, you know, not like too terrible, but still harrowing to contemplate stuff about what is it like to be a kid and like to have to like listen to your parents hash out like how do we split the kids up for going across the border in the event that one of us gets detained right how do we ensure that there is at least one of us who is free to like maneuver um yeah just i just that that's a thing uh it is like a a sort of desolating thing to consider uh and this then sort of moves into uh, thinking about like that, trying to do kind of a history of like Latinx representation in gaming, which is pretty slim, I would say. Yeah, pretty, pretty thin on the ground. <laughs> like, remarkably so. Uh, we get Carmen San Diego, but before then, not a whole lot. Um, one of the things that actually really does jump out is the amount of like Latinx representation in fighting games specifically. Yeah. Fighting games and shooters. Yeah. I think just raw numbers. I think, mm-hmm. I think you could do a, do a count. Right. And I think that's like going to be more than 50%. Mm-hmm. And this is where it, uh, we can revisit like the, the kind of title idea of the player one, which is distinct again from player one, which is what Kelly Gonzalez uses to just like describe like player what when he in the book, he'll say things like player one did this or that or thought this or that. And that is him doing like the the description of an actual gameplay experience. Right. That is mm-hmm. that is him saying, here's here's what I did when I had the controller and I got to mess around here a little bit. Um Player one, and this is uh, also uh, building off of uh, Shira Chess's Ready Player Two, right? The idea of designed identity in that book is cited, uh, and he is sort of uh, uh, doing a little twist off of that here. Um, player one, unlike player two, which is Chess's term for how do how does the the uh, identity of a implicit type of player get designed into a game when that game is being aimed at women, for instance, um, particularly Mm -hmm. in the casual market. Um, In that book, um, uh, she went and interviewed a bunch of developers, right, in order mm -hmm. to kind of understand what is their mental model of their player base, and then how do they design specific um, subjectivities into the game for those players to occupy. Right. So uh, uh, player one is Kelly Gonzalez's term, not 
exactly for like how how do these people design these game uh, how how do these games get designed for like a Latinx audience because it is very clear in in most cases that that's not how they're being designed. Um, mm. Player one instead names for Kelly Gonzalez uh, the experience of being a Latinx person and playing the game and recognizing the way that the game and its narrative are utilizing these stereotypical portrayals and then kind of the um the emotional experience of working through that right cuz sometimes mm-hmm. sometimes it's straight up hurtful and it's something you don't want to see and sometimes it's like this is a stereotype it's complicated but like i'm going to continue to play the game for reason x y or z right and here is how i am going to like make that negotiation with myself yeah it seems like uh kelly gonzalez is is kind of um outside of the cultural studies tradition right like that because that 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 literature base doesn't really show up here and that i don't mean that as a criticism just as a statement right like mm-hmm. that those the cultural studies people don't really show up in this book but you know if you're a Stuart hall person or if you've uh, you know listened to that episode that where we read Stuart hall and talked about it this is what hall calls the negotiated position mm-hmm. right you know uh you interact with something it kind of represents you or speaks to you or has partial things that you could recognize and you have to determine and work through how do you navigate your complicated relationship there and how do you come to a place where you can still engage with it and for hall that would be something like a like a tv show or a movie right he's not writing about games um but kelly gonzalez is, is taking that similar set of ideas right of how do you negotiate how do you think how do you react to um, and he calls it repeatedly, you know, nebulous or amalgamated, right? We get those kinds of words. Amorphous, mm-hmm. I think, shows up too, right? It's just this kind of cluster of feelings and actions that that sits on you and with you um, or, uh, you know, with a, a Latinx player. And that's that's player one, right? That's mm-hmm. this this particular kind of negotiation, ongoing negotiation with uh, with the text, which I agree with you is slightly different from what chess uh, means, I think, by designed identity, but I think it's an interesting adaptation of the idea. Mm-hmm. Right. I think it's it's productive, I think, because it's a way of thinking of or like it foregrounds the way in which like it, it it's it's wrong, as I said, to even think that like the object is hailing you, because I mm-hmm. think the mm-hmm. point that we come from here is that we're not really designing for Latinx people at all. Um, but it does name, I think, that feeling of, well, the, the first uh, kind of gameplay reading that he does here is very illustrative, I think, because he reads uh, the beginning of Uncharted 4, um, where we have at the beginning of that game, it's like a tutorial thing. I, If I'm remembering it correctly, he gives a, a recap, but I don't remember all of the bits. I think you start as like young Nathan Drake or whatever. Uh, and then I think you get like a flash forward to being older Nathan Drake in prison and you're in Latin America somewhere. Uh, and the uh, like the tutorial fight that you have, right, the thing that is teaching you how to um, uh, do the like hand to hand combat for the game uh, is like this prison fight where you are being put up against a like Latinx prisoner, right? Just like yep. some guy who I think he gets a name or whatever. But uh, so like from out the gate. Uh, uh, as Kelly Gonzalez points out, uh, the narrative here is being constructed with like, uh, Nathan Drake, our white protagonist as, uh, I mean, he's in prison too, right? But he is not a criminal, right? The people who are in prison who are criminals are all these Latinx men and their function is to tutorialize combat mechanics. Um, yep. right. 
Mm-hmm. And they and and he gives us all this kind of analysis here, right? About like their dress, the fact that they're speaking Spanish, right? Mm-hmm. That that they are immediately set apart, you know, in the good old fashioned language of of uh, literary studies, right? They're othered, right? Mm-hmm. They are immediately set off, and we are. Uh, saddled into and set into and stitched into the perspective of Nathan Drake, which is implicitly and explicitly um, for the Anglo lens, right? So mm-hmm. the idea is like we're meant to take on a perspective of and the embodiment of whiteness against brownness here, right? Against right. Latinx um, existence. And right. and that, I think you're right. This is, It's really illustrative because those are the stakes. Um Kelly Gonzalez kind of hits that button a lot over the rest of the book of, of giving us scenes and walking us through those scenes very slowly to show where the representational maneuvers are happening. And so I think it's instructive if you wanted to do this kind of analysis, you know, it, it, this is a, a, a way of showing you how to do it. Um, and, and notes explicitly the, here and a bunch of other places in the book, too, that introductions are a place where this is often happening, right? That mm-hmm. when, when you get an introduction to a game or to a character or to whatever, that is within the genre is setting you up with a particular kind of relation. And mm-hmm. If that relationship is predicated on othering Latinx people, that puts you in a particular kind of mindset for the rest of the game. Right. Right. So apart from like Uncharted Uncharted 4, he talks a little bit about Shadow of the Tomb Raider, for instance, which has, uh, you know, Laura Croft skulking around like, I guess, a Day of the Dead festivity. Uh, And one of the first things that can happen is uh, the like people are stealing from the ofrendas, uh, like the the uh, offerings for, uh, you know, the returning spirits of the dead, uh, which often have like little treats or what have you on them. Um, And he pulls this in to show. Uh, you know, this can't just be like regular like this just can't be a cultural event. We have to uh, sort of slide in this uh, little I think it's it a kid. I think it's a kid who's like going around and stealing stuff from the ofrendas, which on the one hand is like, I think, a perfect like, sure, that's a thing that could happen. But, oh, here we are. We're this white woman in a uh, like Mexican city. And we are seeing how even at their kind of in this like, you know, beautiful cultural moment of uh, Day of the Dead, there are uh, Latinx children running around stealing from each other, right? It it brings in this association of criminality. There's also like a drunk that you can interact with that is, again, playing off of these stereotypes. And then ultimately, everyone, apparently, I did not play this game. Apparently, everyone gets destroyed by like a wave that is going to bring about the end of the world or something. There's Uh, like, yeah, there's like, I didn't play this game. So I did not know that there was a like tsunami that appeared that is her fault. Yes, because of because she stole a Mayan artifact or something. And yeah, I had no no (laughs) idea that was going on in this video game. Although a friend of the show, uh, Dia Uh (laughs) uh, gets gets cited and quoted here. Yeah, yeah. Uh, (laughs) uh, Her review. So like that, that shows up. Um, uh, there's also a discussion. I there was like language options, right? You could have the game set so that uh, 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 characters would speak in Spanish or uh, uh, I think Quechua and I think another indigenous language, um, which was yes. presented by uh, the game as like here's here's you know inclusion, here's representation. But then in terms what was of it called? is it like inclusion mode? <laughs> I Maybe think it's immersion so. mode. It it had a name. Like yeah. it has its own name, which I found uh fascinating. Maybe right. I can pull it while you're talking, sorry. 
Right. Well, so the the issue like this, this seems like it's coming from the right place. But then like the problem in terms of implementation and language, by the way, is just a thing that's going to be very important for this book as well, because like uh, it's such a, a clear and quick indicator. And Gonzalez picks up or Kelly Gonzalez picks up on this, you know, a lot like when are there characters who are ostensibly Spanish speaking? When are they? When do they get to speak Spanish and when do they get to speak English? Like at what in like what is the method by which they are made intelligible to the player? Um, so here in this immersion mode, this weird thing happens where uh, all of these other characters are speaking these languages, but Lara just speaks English. And so she's talking to people and in, in English and they're responding in Quechua and then she's responding in English and like they're having a whole conversation, but it's just like no one actually seems to speak any language because the script is just such that uh, there's no interpreter. There's no translator. Right. Uh, mm-hmm. It's all yeah. built from the the baseline of everyone is speaking intelligibly in English and will like swap out the languages depending on the player's decision and just give them subtitles. Well, yeah, it creates this like weird scenario. And this is this is what he points out. Right. Which is that. In this scenario, and it's called immersion mode. Okay. Not inclusion mode. I- inclusion mode would be just like a, a, a level beyond thought, but uh-huh. also it's not. Uh, if the, if it happened, would you be shocked? No. Uh-huh. <laughs> but, uh, but, but yeah, it creates this kind of hierarchy in which uh, English is a language everyone knows, mm-hmm. right? Like everyone must know English if she only speaks in English. But she's such a master of the world that she speaks all these indigenous languages too, right? As well as Spanish, right? right? So like the 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 immersion mode is kind of even weirder than just you know like hunt for Red October mode in which everyone speaks English because that's you know uh, <laughs> the the assumption that is that is made about the world for the Anglo audience or whatever, right? Uh, so yeah, we get that. There's uh, oh uh, w- one moment, yeah. A video game needs to do the hunt for Red October thing where people are speaking in their own language and it zooms in on the mouth. You know uh-huh. what I'm talking about? You ever seen the hunt for Red October? Not in a long, long time. At the beginning of the movie, they're all like speaking in Russian, right? Because uh-huh. they're Russians. And it zooms in on their mouth. And while they're speaking in Russian, it crossfades into English and then it zooms back out. <laughs> so the movie makes it very clear. Like they're all speaking in Russian. Don't get it. Don't get it twisted. Right. We know that you're not going to read subtitles because <laughs> this is a Tom Clancy movie. Right. Right. So, like, <laughs> you know, we'll do you a solid here. Like uh, gentle yeah. audience. Be our friends. But also we need to be very clear here. These are Russians. Yes. Yeah. It's a it's a fascinating and no one ever bothers doing that again. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. There's, there's never another moment. I, I can't think of another moment in a movie of that happening. But. They cared, you know, yeah. the, the, the Tom Clancy camp cared, I guess. Yeah, there was something interesting there. Yeah. I think that would ultimately, given reading this book, be deeply offensive if that occurred with Spanish. Mm-hmm. Uh, right. You know, yeah. like I, I, I don't think everything should be doing that, but it is a fascinating recognition of what's happening, at least. Right. Uh, which these other games don't do. Right. Or in other movies don't do. Just everyone speaks English. Right. And just like leaving it implicit. Like, yeah, you're imagining they're speaking whatever. Yeah. Uh yeah, so there's also a you know short bit about Red Dead Redemption Two and the character of Javier, uh, and then the character of Manny in The Last of Us Two, who shows up as like this. These are also uh, except for Red Dead Redemption Two, I think uh, Javier, like the scene with him is like I think mid game, uh, but Manny in The Last of Us Two is another like intro character, and he's introduced in very quickly in short order. It's he's legible as like the Latin lover stereotype, right? Yeah. 
Yeah, and uh, another friend of the show, Yusuf Cole, getting um, getting mm-hmm. cited here um, yeah. as speaking to the question of what's going on with Manny. But yeah, M- Manny's representation as the Latin lover is well remarked upon at this point, and kind of wild that the game seemingly just you know walks directly into that pit trap without any kind of thought whatsoever. Mm-hmm. Um, there is some st- interesting stuff that happens in that game to to you know, speak lightly positively about a game I don't care for. Um, but uh, there is some interesting stuff there where he has a grandfather and he's like the only character with like a, a human being they are attached to who has culture. Huh? You know, cause it's like grandfather's yeah. from Mexico and he doesn't speak English. Oh, inter- interesting. And other people talk about that in the game. Like how's huh. your grandfather doing? Yeah. It's a fascinating, weird little spur. You know, mm-hmm. and, and I mean that, right? It's like this little thing that's in the game and is not really remarked upon or anything like that. I wrote a little bit about Manny in my in my book, In the World is Born from Zero, as a, as a case of a character having culture, although everything, you know, uh, you know, I wrote a little bit, I think, about the Latin lover stuff there as well. But everything being said in this book is 100% correct. But there are these weird little crenulations in the Manny Alvarez design that is mm-hmm. fascinating. I don't know what to do with them, but but they are they are interesting, to say well, the least. I mean, that is interesting, because I think one of the critiques that I heard about that game um, specifically was the way in which, like, like the post-apocalypse happened and then everyone got homogenized. Yeah. Right? Yes. Like, that it's just... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, like, culture doesn't exist. Right. <laughs> so there, he's... I mean, and the places where it does exist are bizarre uh you know and, and i say bizarre not in the sense that they're like outliers but they're so specific and focused and they do not match up with anything else there's the scene in the um uh, in the temple with the torah that happens right which is mm. like jewishness is still around and running around and that's interesting um and then there's the scene with manny i think those are the only moments of actual human culture that exists wow um, yeah it's weird I guess there's like a barn dance. (laughs) I guess that's some form of culture. But you know what I mean? In terms of like um, parts of like deeply held parts of human reality, like religion Mm -hmm. and their cultural formation and the oral history of their people, all of that stuff. It's it's few and far between. This is not The Last of Us 2 podcast, but, you know, I've written like 50,000 words about The Last of Us. And so I I can go off at any minute, Michael. You know that. Yeah, I do. I set you up and then let you go. And now I pull out the rug from underneath you by saying we move to the next chapter. (sighs) Do we move to the next chapter? Is there anything else that we need to say out of this? I'm looking at my I I didn't have time to type up notes, but I didn't make some notes here. Um, I, I think it's interesting the mix of um, uh, citational practices that are here. Just thinking about the form of the book, I mm-hmm. really like, and this is something that you know, it's a, it's a, a a drum I hit quite often that um, games criticism and thoughts thoughts about games happen in lots of different places, right? Like uh, academics do not own thinking about games, and so whenever we read a book, and this is actually fairly rare at this point, which is good. I actually think this is good. But um, sometimes you read an academic book that only treats like the emanations from other people in the academy as like worth thinking about. You mm-hmm. know, that if there's not an academic book chapter or if there's not a monograph, there's no reason to engage with thinking in the world. And I think that that is impoverishing to what we do in the academy. You know, we we need to be in conversation with other people. That's partially why I like 
uh, you know, uh, at least a, a portion of the stylistic choices in this book because it does make it engaged and it feels like a human being talking to you. That's good. I just think maybe maybe the gas is like, you know, uh, the pedals down a little bit too much in some places. Like there's a section in this um, chapter that like goes on about like the orange man being elected. And that feels like just, you know, this like, uh, uh, I don't know. Um, yeah. Uh, insufficient to the problem, maybe, right? But also, mm-hmm. it's funny and it's humorous, and that's what it's meant to be. So, you know, maybe I'm a stick in the mud about it. But what I really like about this chapter is that there's a very strong mix of kind of high minded theoretical work going on, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, but then also just games critics, right? Like I said, yeah, Lucina, Yusuf Cole are being cited, uh, several other people as well. Um, clearly being in conversation with games criticism and also games reviews because games reviews tell you a lot about how a game is received and how it's positioned in the culture that it's in. And if you're writing a book about the way that people play games and think about games, then maybe paying attention to that is good. And I, I really think that Kelly Gonzalez does a great job of that in this chapter of kind of bouncing from positionality to positionality. Where where does information come from? What information matters? And sometimes that's inside of you. Sometimes that's from the broader public discussion. Sometimes that's from academic sources. And I think that Kelly Gonzalez really strings those things together in a, in a great way here. Mm-hmm. Uh, then chapter two, then. Uh, so the, you'll notice that I didn't really like lay out the structure uh, at the beginning, like I typically do. And that is partly because uh, the structure here is really just kind of three case studies, right? The introduction mm-hmm. was yeah. setting the stakes. Uh, the first chapter was here's a history of these character types um, in as much as they exist. And then here's a couple of high profile examples that uh, show you the stakes, right? As you, as you said, like the Uncharted, for example, really shows you the stakes of what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the next two chapters are kind of more focused case studies on particular characters. So chapter two is called Donning the Mask, Narrative Focalizer, and Latinx Erasure in Transmedial Spider-Person Stories. So this is a chapter that is about, like, big picture, um... Marvel Spider-Man, and I don't mean like, well, it is about the character, but like specifically <laughs> the game from Insomniac called Marvel Spider-Man. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> the movie Spider-Man Enter the Spider-Verse, and then the other Insomniac game, Spider-Man Miles Morales. Uh because I guess this is the state of Spider-Man studies today. Is <laughs> there are so many Spider-Mans. Um uh, mm-hmm. it, it is funny to read Spider Person. Yes. <laughs> and then be like, well, I guess that is the appropriate, like, group term, because there's all kinds of spider hyphenate. Yes. You know, there's a spider pig. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, uh, and so, the as you might guess, right, this is, like, big picture, just looking at the ways that the character of Miles Morales um, is handled in all three of these properties. Uh, and very differently, it seems like uh, the Marvel Spider-Man, for instance, is a, I think this is correct, is a Peter Parker based game in which Miles Morales shows up as like a supporting character. Uh, Enter the Spider-Verse is its movie and like Miles is like the main character there. And then Spider-Man Miles Morales is a game wherein Miles is the main character. And so. Well, lucky for you, I've played all of them. I'm, I'm uh, uh, um, uh, you know, cracking my knuckles here. Uh-huh. Lucky for you, I've played all these video games in the past four months. Good for so you. Tell you. All about it. Any questions you have, Michael, let me clarify. Okay. Information about Marvel Spider-Man, Marvel Spider-Man, Colin Miles Morales, Marvel Sp- Spider-Man 2. Happy to help. 
I do like how Marvel Spider-Man gets uh, uh, abbreviated here as MSM because every single time my brain auto parsed it as mainstream media. I 100% also did. (laughs) It made me feel like I was like going a little bit nuts because I was like, yeah, that's right. The mainstream media won't let Rio Morales speak Spanish. (laughs) Like, (laughs) Well, (laughs) the first time I saw MSM, I just totally missed, you know, the translation maneuver there of like from the thing to its abbreviation. Uh And I read it as DSM. And you know, I totally just read over it wrong. And I was like, wait a minute. What? Hold on. We got to go back. And I had to like go back a page. I was like, what is going on here? I had to like reread. But but yes, the mainstream media won't allow. Uh, they they force Miles Morales to like help out at the community center all the time. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. So uh, uh, if you're not familiar with these characters at all, uh, I'm not going to explain luck. Spider-Man to you. Yeah. Like, good luck. Like, luckily, there's like half a dozen movies or more that you can go check out. Um yep. So uh, but if you don't know about uh, Miles Morales, because that's pretty important here, uh, he is mainly notable as being like an alternative uh, uh, to the regular Peter Parker and Spider-Man. And that is, in fact, an important point that uh, Kelly Gonzalez mm-hmm. points out, right, that like sort of Miles Morales's significance comes into focus as a contrast to like the default whiteness of Peter Parker. Um, yeah, let me let me hit you with some Miles Morales. You ready? OK, here, let's go. You know, comics. More. Spider-Man exists. Starting in the 60s. Good old Peter Parker, Peter Whitebread Parker, right? He, he's the everyman. And by virtue of being the everyman, and from the moment he comes from, he's a white guy. He goes through all kinds of trials and tribulations. Uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s, maybe it's 99 or maybe 2000, I don't remember the exact exact year, uh, the Ultimate Universe of Marvel Comics, which is an alternate universe kind of over here that reinterprets a bunch of characters uh, from the Marvel Universe. It is founded, one of the launch books for that is Ultimate Spider-Man by uh, Brian Michael Bendis, uh, written by Brian Michael Bendis. Brian Michael Bendis invents Miles Morales as a, uh, this universe, this other universe's Spider-Man, right? Mm -hmm. So he has very explicitly and directly um, invented to be like, this ain't your mama, Spider-Man. You know, he's he's everything that, that Peter Parker's not, right? And so actually, the first few stories of that dig into that. As Kelly Gonzalez notes, Brian Michael Bendis is a white guy. And so there's mm-hmm. some, some interesting negotiation stuff going on there with that. Um, and so over the years, eventually the Ultimate Universe is closed. It's ended. Um, ultimatum's a thing that happens. But Miles Morales is a popular enough character that he is ported over uh, to the mainstream Marvel universe. So he's just like a Marvel character now. He's just mm-hmm. in there. And he is the one of the other Spider-Mans, Spider-People um, that, that appear. And so from Jump in the game, they were like, yeah, we got we to gotta, you know, be able to ping off of this. And so the first Spider-Man game... Over the course of it, you are introduced to, and you play as Peter Parker for the most part, and then you're introduced to Miles Morales due to spoilers. It's in the book, but spoilers, you know, the death of Miles Morales's father, Jefferson Davis. Yes, mm-hmm. Miles Morales's father is named Jefferson Davis. It is, it is a huge issue, and in fact, has been uh, fixed in the comic book, mm-hmm. so that, that doesn't happen anymore. So, so that there's not a, a weird <laughs> irony that doesn't going happen on anymore. I, it's just every time it happens, you're like, yeah. what? His yeah. name is Jefferson Davis. 
But uh, he's, he's a black man, he's, and he's also a police officer, which goes into all kinds of stuff, too. Uh, in um, You play as uh, Miles Morales lightly in the first Spider-Man game. There's a couple instances. It's kind of a, the Last of Us thing, you know, where there's mm-hmm. a couple mm-hmm. spin moments. Uh, in uh, Ultimate, or not Ultimate Spider-Man, in Spider-Man Miles Morales, the, the video game, which is not a full game, it's kind of a $40 you know, um, few hour limited thing. You play as him entirely there. And in that one, and then also th- this gets brought, brought up in the chapter as well, that that's a Peter Parker's going to Europe. And so you got to be Miles Morales <laughs> and you got to like be weekend Spider-Man. I'm, I'm not kidding. That's literally oh what occurs. And so you're kind of being guided by Peter Parker, uh, you know, as you're playing as Miles Morales, <laughs> but it's kind of his like first weekend, you know, being full Spider-Man. Mm-hmm. And then uh, Spider-Man like 2 bounces back his first weekend as the shift manager. Basically, it's 100%. <laughs> He's got to go talk to his Uncle Aaron, right? And people who have played know, know about that. Uh, yes, it a hundred percent is like all right. You've got the, you you have the the uh, the safe key now. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Or you've got the the key to the register. Uh-huh. Uh, don't mess this up, Miles Morales. And so there's a kind of limited, you know, it's maybe a fifteen hour game, something like that, twenty hour game. And then in Marvel Spider-Man Two, you play kind of equally as the two, and they have different plot lines and different expectations. This book was completed before Marvel Spider-Man Two came out. So it doesn't speak to it really other than the promotional materials. Mm. Hopefully that has provided all the context necessary to talk about the rest of the chapter. I think so, because the main problem with Marvel Spider-Man, that first game, uh, as Kelly Gonzalez outlines, is that Miles is nominally like an Afro Latinx guy, right? But neither he nor his mother ever speak Spanish or make any sort of cultural references that would imply this about them uh, in the times when they show up. Right. And that is like an issue uh, that is resolved in uh, the Miles Morales game expansion, whatever you want to call that. And then he basically like he he lays out here is how Marvel Spider-Man handles this. Not well. Here are the alternatives, right? Here's how the movie handles this. Here is how the game handles it in the ways that are like, you know, appropriate to a game. Um, and not all of them are perfect. Uh, and in particular, is it? Am I remembering this right? There's one. Is it the Miles Morales one where he gets captured by enemies in a way that is staged very clearly to look like a uh, like a police incident or something right in, like, a, I don't remember and I, I don't think Kelly Gonzalez uh, lays it out a hundred percent here either but there's a I I think it might be where they uh where there's a train crash uh and it kind of plays like spider-man 2 the movie I think that, Here's the thing about the the, the Spider Man games. If you play them all back to back, they kind of start running together because yeah. similar stuff happens repeatedly. But there's a big civilian rescue moment that happens. We can say that. Maybe it's also it might be the bomb on the bridge. I think that might be it actually. Okay. Miles Morales saves everybody. Does a great job. And these security guard dudes who are from like the Roxxon Corporation, which is like the evil corp that's gentrifying the neighborhood. They're both gentrifying and they're gonna blow it up. It's like a real. <laughs> um, you know, it's like it, all the bad shit happened at one time, right? Um, they are there and they come and they like try to arrest him, basically. Right. Right. And so like. uh, or, uh I, I, Actually, let me clarify. 
it seems like they are going to arrest him or detain him. And then it's pretty clear they're just going to shoot him. That, yeah. that is actually what's going to happen. Yeah. Right. And so Kelly Gonzalez points out that, you know, this uh, with Miles as this uh, uh, black man, like reads in a very specific and uh, like politically charged way. And on the one hand, and it's also undercut by the fact that these are just like these are the bad guys, right? These They are made to evoke police, right? And they're therefore kind of raise the specter of like racialized police violence. Uh, and at the same time not really committing to that critical angle. Uh, and in fact, I think it's the the first game has like Peter Parker just happily helping the police, right? There's some like line that an NPC gives you about like helping the police do their job. Oh, that that is the entirety of that was the criticism of the first Spider-Man game as being, uh, you know, copaganda is the mm. language used there is that. Um, the whole game is like uh, Spider-Man just doing everything he can in order to make sure that justice is done and that is working with Yuri, who is your kind of boss in the uh, – not boss, but like your ally. You uh-huh. know, kind of your Commissioner Gordon. Right. That's just thinking, way, yeah, right? like a Commissioner Gordon. Yeah. And so like gives you tip-offs and you tip her off and things like that. And uh, and he does this Spider-Cop voice where it's like a <laughs> – you know, he's like a noir character a little bit. And he's like, spider cups, he's got a thirst for justice. There's all this stuff that happens. Um, so uh, hated, so mm-hmm. broadly hated that uh, in, in Marvel Spider-Man 2, it's like, hey, you remember Yuri? She went on vacation. We don't <laughs> talk to the police. Now we only talk to the dispatcher that deals with police, firefighters, and ambulances. <laughs> They back off of it so hard. Lesson um, learned. Yeah, but but yeah. So that is very much the first game is is uh, like Peter Parker the police. Uh, the police is like Dark Hand, you know, the mm, kind of mm-hmm. Batmany kind of deal. Okay, yeah. Uh, so like the first game has that issue. I already mentioned like the language uh, uh, point that Kelly mm-hmm. Gonzalez raises. The contrast to this uh, is that there are people in that game who don't speak English. They speak Mandarin. Which is like a whole other problem, but like, you know, formally or like the level of structure like illustrates the same issue, which is like uh, if people aren't speaking English, then they're villains, right? Then they are someone that we should not be identifying with. And so therefore it is sort of it, it is it is made more significant that the villains speak Mandarin uh, and Miles Morales and his mother Rio, who are characters who have like every reason to have like Spanish in their in their dialogue don't touch it at all. Um, yeah. Yeah. And then uh, the uh, second game, the the expansion, right, um, mm-hmm. takes a better tactic with this. But there's a thing that's also lost uh, that uh, Kelly Gonzalez thinks could be really interesting. So the you gestured at this. The first game has like segments where you can play. You're playing as Peter, but you can also uh, play as Miles for certain segments and then as Mary Jane for other segments. Right. And so using the term from literary theory about focalization, right. Who is, who is the character that the prose of a novel is like aligning your, as the reader, your perspective with, right. How are you kind of seeing the world through a character? Uh, Video games often do this by having character selection or like moving characters or changing characters between sequences or whatever. This works in a certain way in Marvel Spider-Man, and it disappears in the Spider-Man Miles Morales uh, uh, 
expansion. And so he kind of wonders, you know, oh, what what could we have done, say, if we had been able to ping pong between Miles and Rio, between Miles and his mother, right? What if we got like actually two perspectives on uh like this like life rather than just Miles? So that's kind of where the chapter sort of ends up, right? There's Mm-hmm. This is this is sort of the thing, right? It's like there's a uh, there are good things to to notice, right? Good things to build on. And also Kelly Gonzalez is always going to be asking for more because there always could be more because what is there does, in fact, seem so, so small kind of when you consider it against the vastness of video games themselves. Yeah, I mean, it's a it's a good thing. It's a good reflex to have and it's a good analytic reflex to have, which is that a video game could be anything. Mm -hmm. there there is no limit to what a game is right you can (laughs) make decisions to make anything digitally right we can we can talk about the same thing in cinema too right like you can shoot anything and edit it together to look like anything and whatever came out is what people chose to come out right so Mm -hmm. i think uh analytically it's like very helpful to hold developers feet to the fire to be like Here's what happened. Here are the outputs. Here's what could have been done differently that we could see could be done differently, right? In the you know the universe next door that would have pre- created a better output, mm-hmm. right? Uh, that is perhaps more <sighs> legitimate or more authentic or more uh, enlivening for real human beings. Uh, th- this runs up against all kinds of other things too, and and Kelly Gonzalez isn't really interested in in these things, and doesn't have to be. This is not a criticism whatsoever. But uh, there are genre forms, right? I mean, that's part of what's being responded to earlier and in the next chapter too, right? That um, that Peter Parker as like a particular kind of white guy exists in a genre form too, right? There's not just like a universal whiteness and it is capacious and can do everything, right? Like it exists within a particular kind of framework. And then uh, Kelly Gonzalez is absolutely right to identify that Miles Morales is seen as the supplement to that, right? That, mm-hmm. that is fundamentally seen as not a full representative human being who is, is, um, uh, a whole culture into themselves, but just is the other character in the setup character to play in contrast with um, the whiteness of Peter Parker. Right. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, that's exactly right. But there are these, um, I think maybe like the thing that I, I feel here too, is like, I, I just want another 20 pages of like comparable analysis, you know, um, why and when and who made these decisions. There's lots of interviews that are about these mm-hmm. characters and the design of these characters. And I think I would have like, rather than just the kind of new critic analysis, right. Of like looking at the object, noting the patterns involved in it, telling us how it ties into the larger lit base. I also would like a little bit more of like a, like a how, right. Not mm-hmm. just a, like what it is, but how did it come to be that way? And what are the assumptions built into it? Because, and I think that that this is important analytically, is that I think Insomniac thinks they did a pretty good job. Mm. And like Kelly Gonzalez points out, well, they didn't. And so what is the, I guess what I'm feeling for is like, what is the limit to the imaginary here that is preventing Mm -hmm. them from doing the full job? And the easy answer is like, well, systemic racism, right? And an absolute inability for the contemporary games industry to fully think through Latinx people as an audience and like full human beings. I think that's absolutely true. And that's like 
what Kelly Gonzalez goes for. But I am curious about more. Maybe that's on obligation for this book, and maybe I should go read the other book that gets cited here to to think about that, right? The the cultural code book. But I'm I'm really curious about what is the conceptual or perceptual gap between this thing and what they thought they were doing. Mm-hmm. I guess the other thing to that's in the mix here that's not really talked about in the book and again doesn't really have to be but it did make me think about is like well what's what's proper representation and then who has the distinction to say proper representation right mm-hmm. like who makes those decisions and when do they happen um you know this is a thing I obviously am like not a Latinx studies scholar that's not a thing that I do but um, you know, I've, I have a little bit of knowledge, you know, I wouldn't say I'm an expert, but I've done a lot of historical reading around, um, black American self-representation in film. And this has been all consuming within that universe, right? Since mm-hmm. at least the seventies, you know, I brought up Hollywood shuffle earlier, <laughs> but, uh, but, the, but there's these kind of internal questions of, well, who is the proper subject to be represented within this thing? Because, Latinx identity obviously is not a monolith. It's not all one thing, you know, and Kelly Gonzalez is very careful about that to talk about his experience specifically. Um, and so you do wonder, well, who who is Miles Morales responsible to as a character? And maybe mm-hmm. that's actually one of the major issues. And, you know, that's it's something that Kelly Gonzalez talks a little bit about toward the end of the chapter is like uh, Miles Morales as a character is uh, an Afro Latino. Right. There's yeah. that going on. Uh, uh, but playing to his mother, who is Latinx, right, explicitly, mm-hmm. his father is black, his father is out of the picture very soon because he's murdered by the plot, right? That's, again, mm-hmm. the parallel between Peter Parker and Miles Morales, right? Like, the the father has to die in this narrative to make that parallel work. Whether we think that's good or bad is, you know, um, up to us. But there's something going on here about that negotiation. I've actually talked a lot. I, I The only reason I played these games is I had so many students last semester. I taught, taught a video game seminar, and they all talked about it. And I'd never played it before. And they had a lot of opinions, particularly one student, had a lot of thoughts and opinions and questions, too, about Miles Morales as uh, a black character and mm-hmm. and how they make him kind of be, uh, uh, you know, in, in his language, like a, re- a really squeaky clean character mm. uh, that that my student, who was also black, did, felt very, was very weird um, mm-hmm. and uh, kind of strange. And I was like, well, I don't know anything about that. So I should probably play the game. And it's just fascinating the way that Miles Morales is treated as both a kind of marquee person for the thing and is so broadly sketched. And mm-hmm. I think Kelly Gonzalez is really focusing in on that, right? He, he's got characterization and he's got culture, but not too much character and not too much culture. Mm-hmm. Um, as opposed to the Miles Morales of the movies, who is so well drawn, right? Right. And so clearly uh, drawn, you know, uh, portrayed for us as uh, a kid from a particular social location, from a particular time in a particular place. And um, I really like that Kelly Gonzalez uses that compare and contrast to be like, well, we know it can be done because it was done in a two-hour movie. Right. <laughs> and so you're telling me that in a, in 30 hours of Miles Morales content, we couldn't get any of that into the game? And I think that's like an important, you know, lever to get under the whole thing, right? Is that that there are strategies of representations and strategies of depicting Miles Morales, and we can see roads that were taken and roads that weren't, and, you know, we can do better. And that's ultimately where the chapter ends too, right? Which is like, do better, Insomniac Games. 
Um, and and I I think that's appropriate, but also it feels like the the problem might be more fundamental than do better. You know, mm-hmm. <laughs> the problem might be a little bit more bone deep. We didn't talk anything about the third, Michael. No, we didn't. <laughs> Was there a reason for that, or do we want to talk about it briefly? I mean, we can talk about it briefly. It shows up here, uh, cited to Jessica Benjamin as a psychoanalytic concept. The third, uh, how I've you know uh, glossed into my notes here, right? It is. Um, uh, it arises in the tensions of a binary set, right? It is an intersubjective space of surrender. Uh, I thought that this was interesting because of the, as the psychoanalysis guy here, uh, I was like, I have not heard of this. I should look that up later. And I didn't. Uh, it turns out you looked it up and it comes from in, a book. In, she- a, in a complete ringer incident that yeah. would never happen 90% of the time, I looked a thing up. You're right. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, you, know, you looked I up learned. a thing about psychoanalysis specifically. I know. Well, I was so weirded out by it because it kind of comes out of nowhere mm-hmm. and becomes much like the border. And the reason I, I said we might want to say something about it is the last subsection here, I think, is is actually really important for the whole book because it melds together this concept of the third with the border stuff from earlier on. And then also is bringing to bear some of Gloria Anzaldua's work. You know, that's all happening here. Mm-hmm. And so like if all the analysis we've talked about is kind of the um, applied case for these ideas, there's a theoretical conceptual substrate that kind of supports the whole thing, right? A bunch of assumptions about the shape of the world. Mm-hmm. Uh, when we talk about theory, that's often what we're talking about, right? Is there are the the core assumptions from which everything else is kind of stood on, like scaffolding or or uh, or a foundation. And so, yeah, there's this Benjamin book that she is a. I looked it up and I read the intro for the book. She is a practicing psychoanalyst. I don't think I have the book pulled up right here in front of me, unfortunately. Maybe uh, yes, I do. So it's Jessica Benjamin. The book is Beyond Doer and Done Two: Recognition Theory, Inner Subjectivity, and the Third. Is the name of the book. Let me explain it to you because <laughs> I read it. Jessica Benjamin is a practi- practicing psychoanalyst, like I said, um, and she's been writing for like forty years. So I, I think she has got to be kind of in the later stages of her career. This book came out fairly recently, I think 2017. The notion of the third is that within traditional Lacanian and Freudian psychoanalysis, there is the self, which is like you, you know, your subject, mm-hmm. your, 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 your personness. And there is the other, which is historically understood in its most foundational moment of, of human development as the mother, right? This, mm-hmm. this other that, that you use to bounce off of and craft yourself by, um, understanding them as separate from you, right? At one point, you and your mother are one, and then you are no longer, and there's that separation that um, uh, that that grounds you initially in your subjectivity, and then uh, she becomes the other, right? The thing to, to uh, bounce off of, and ultimately the thing to have friction against. Mm-hmm. And then that spins up into lots of other systems, right? The big other, things like that. Is mm-hmm. that a fair summation of, of like the initiating moment of psychoanalysis? Yes. Okay. She says, uh, Benjamin says, there's this concept that might be helpful that she develops in her practice called the third. And the third, like capital T third, the idea is that we shouldn't be thinking of self-other relationships. We should be thinking of mutual recognition relationships that kind of meet in the middle. 
And there's a politics to it. She's like, listen, Trump was elected. Obviously, something's going on. I mean, it's very explicitly speaking to an American uh, political zone. And it's basically saying it's because of our lack of mutual recognition for one another that this this historical moment of kind of uh, rightward drift has occurred. Mm-hmm. Parentheses, my own commentary. Do not agree. <laughs> think this is wrong. Think think psychoanalysis is getting this problem completely universally wrong. That's my personal opinion. Back to <laughs> Benjamin. But Benjamin says that what we have to look at instead of subjectivity is intersubjectivity. So instead of how do I constitute myself or how am I constituted, how do we mutually constitute each other in the ways we engage with each other? Mm-hmm. I'm a little unclear after reading the introduction exactly how Kelly Gonzalez fits these things together. Um, although I, I, I do looking through the book and kind of, of um, checking out the table of contents, I do understand that Benjamin like scales this up to a societal level. So I, I totally get that. Like that's, that is what the piece that Gun- uh, Kelly Gonzalez is pulling on here. But ultimately, uh, Kelly Gonzalez is saying that the video game itself, this moment of taking representations of the other and representations of the self or our understanding of the self, which is always a representation, by the way, taking those things, uh, when you play the game, that is a moment of kind of intersubjective personhood, right? That you Mm -hmm. come to understand yourself and others in the moment that you can do that. And so if Miles Morales is a more, you know, big quotation marks here, but more authentic or more fully drawn Latinx character, it can actually create a moment of potential intersubjective learning, right? Like you could mm-hmm. do something helpful with that. That That is what the third is used for in the book. And I think that is what the third is broadly in the book. But, you know, in the in the Benjamin concept. However, that does mean that, that psychoanalysis becomes like a load-bearing implement or idea in this book of where do we go from here? And I have to be honest with you, like this is, again, personal opinion. I am um, unpersuaded by most empathy claims of this of this nature. Um, you know, I, I am I am um, I don't think that playing games about other subjectivities necessarily produces empathy. I think often it can produce sympathy and often it can produce pity. And we know from the history of racial representations, and in fact, um, Kelly Gonzalez is about to talk to us, or actually did already talk to us about this a little bit in this chapter we just talked about, looking at the history of uh, black pain as being represented in cinema, right? That that there are black film critics and, and black filmmakers who are deeply critical of just continually reproducing black pain because that creates a system under which their pain is the kind of engine for um, white affirmation, right. Mm-hmm. Or, or white, um, um, pity or emotion or whatever, right. Not as seeing them as full human beings. And I worry that an empathy claim about, well, if you play as the thing and the thing is appropriate and good and right, then therefore we will move forward as a society. I, you know, my, my history as a media studies person and looking at these arguments as they have extended over the past 50 years and several different kind of identity categories, I'm a little bit more, hesitant to to align myself with that claim. I think it's good, right? Like I think these things are probably a good idea. I'm hesitant to say that empathy automatically comes out of play. Mm-hmm. Um, especially given what we know from Spider-Man 2 where people still don't like Miles Morales, right? And mm-hmm. I don't think that 
I don't think that emerges from uh, that got Miles Morales wrong, right? I think that that racism and uh, colorism and anti-Latinx sentiment emerge from all kinds of positions in society, and there's not a unique link that happens between humans and their games. They're just another node in a kind of network of reinforcement of ideology and ideas. So I think there's a little bit of a split between me personally and Kelly Gonzalez here, but I thought this was an interesting thing to bring in. And this gets sutured to the border narrative too, right? That, or the border idea that we talked about a little bit earlier, because the third, the third is seen as this kind of opportunity to interact with the game and get something out of it and kind of transform subjectivity. And that gets aligned with the border too, right? There's something that happens at the ambiguous space of connection of games that operates like a border for Kelly Gonzalez. And so Mm -hmm. all those things are kind of coming together here um, at, at the end of this chapter. Right, right. It's um uh, a kind of double movement, like approaching the the video game is like approaching the border in that uh, you are engaging with something that is outside of yourself or like, you know, can promise to give you something that is uh, not yourself uh, and in that kind of opening up. Right. Or in the potential scene of that opening up, there is the potential for more fundamental change, essentially. Uh, uh, whatever that might be, like, as you said, I think that often here in this book pivots on kind of empathy claims, which I am similarly skeptical of from just like a slightly different trajectory in that, like that's, that's how people have like defended the study of literature for centuries at this point. And Mm -hmm. as someone who is like, as a person who studies literature and sort of studies the way that people study and talk about and defend literature, it's really hard to look at the past several centuries and think like, all right, well, we had literature this whole time. Did it make us better? <laughs> um, yeah. Something yeah. else has to be happening here. Uh, but I also yeah. agree that, like, it it, it it matters to me, actually, right, that, like, my nephew's favorite Spider-Man is without a doubt Miles Morales. I think that's a good thing for, like, growing up as a, a very isolated white kid in rural Indiana. Like, it is cool to me that, uh, like, my nephew like loves miles morales like i think that is good yeah Yeah, he's spider-man now right is your nephew more empathetic to miles morales i don't know hopefully (laughs) it's very wouldn't you know it like the six-year-old uh does not have a lot of uh articulated Mm -hmm. thoughts about the movements of his affect so do you uh do you ever talk to him he's just like i don't know he's having to go from a lot of he's having to go to a lot of universes (laughs) (laughs) it's pretty hard it's hard to go to school. You think yeah. he empathizes on that level? And it's like it's hard to go to like middle school and yeah, also be Spider Man. Yeah, no, I, I think he probably does empathize with that moving between school mm-hmm. and Spider Man things. Yeah, me too. <laughs> yeah, I get it. Hard to be an Indiana Spider Man, by the way. <laughs> really, really hard. <laughs> Extremely hard to be an Indiana Spider Man. You got you got you get your low to the ground. Yeah, I was gonna say he's using trap doors. <laughs> you got to learn to drive. <laughs> Oh, that would be great if Indiana Spider-Man's a trapdoor spider. <laughs> yes. And he just sets up underground and waits for criminals to come over him. He jumps out and grabs him, beats him up. Yeah. <laughs> please, someone draw some fan art of Indiana Spider-Man. Please. Please. Yes. That's so good. Oh That's really God. funny. <laughs> Mississippi Spider-Man, he like gets on logs. Yeah. <laughs> 
he's got his own like steamboat, like the paddle. <laughs> it's like all in the Spider-Man colors. He wears an colors. all white suit. He wears like an all white. <laughs> he has a big mustache on the outside of the thing. Uh huh. He just tells a bunch of firecracker jokes all the time. <laughs> he's great. He's beloved. He solves no crime. Mm-hmm. <laughs> he does nothing in in spite. Our you know re real Spider-Man shit does nothing. <laughs> But a beloved character, nevertheless. Mm-hmm. Cool. Uh, then we, uh, so the book, uh, like the the main thing, there's a third chapter that's kind of the end. And then there, there, there's a coda that's mostly just kind of, uh, here's some other stuff just to talk about briefly. Uh, so the third chapter is called Performing Latinx Criminality in Life is Strange 2. Uh, I have also not played Life is Strange 2, but I remembered listening to a lot of Patrick Klepek, I think, talking hmm. about it on podcasts back yeah, in the day. I think day. you liked it a lot. Right? Yeah. Uh, what became very clear to me in reading this chapter on that game was that it is so much more bizarre in practice than the sense I got from like Patrick's play-by-plays, I feel like. Like, I did not realize that this was a game about, like, children with, like, telekinetic powers. Yeah. I. Hell yeah, it is. Okay. <laughs> they, like, blow up a cop immediately. Yeah, yeah. Like, that's, that, that we get a whole reading of that. The opening scene of blowing up a cop. Uh, yeah. So. I played the first two episodes, I think, and I just never went back to it. Okay. So, like, big picture, what this is, it's about these, um. Uh, two kids named Sean and Daniel Diaz. Uh, and at the start of the game, as mentioned, one of them manifests telekinetic powers and through kind of a weird complex series of things uh, ends up uh, killing, I think, a cop. Uh, and then they go on the run. Uh, they live in like the like the south of uh, uh, Western United States and they go on the run for the Mexico border because their father is originally from Mexico and has family there. And so they're running. I, I So they're running to like escape the police and basically, you know, run into episodic adventures slash uh, like, I don't know, unfortunate incidents like there's a another later like reading of a long reading of a scene where you kind of just meet some guys who like yell racist stuff at you and you have to decide yeah. how you're going to react to that. Right. This is kind of why I stopped playing. Mm-hmm. Um, not directly, but it, it seemed like and Kelly Gonzalez talks about this. Right. You know, this this is made by a French team um, and it really seemed there's a lot of rip from the headline stuff that's in here, along with the psychic power part. Mm-hmm. And. It really did seem like to me for the first couple acts that a lot of the game is just like working through. Uh, do you know what kind of racist shit can happen to like a Latino kid? Right. Yeah. Which is like true. Like I, I would never deny that. But I also grew up in a, in a in an area that had a huge amount of um, I, I was very lucky right? because I grew up in the south. But then I grew up in a town that had a factory in it. And in the late 90s and early 2000s, uh, like a bunch of uh, of Latinx people moved in, right, from Central America and from uh, the Caribbean and from the West Coast of the United States. And so, like, they all came in. And, like, I lived in this, like, boiling pot of white racism, right, because of that. But then I also, like, met a bunch of those people um, in a mm-hmm. way that if I grew up two towns over, it would have never happened, right? You know, I went to school with them. 
all this kind of stuff. Um, uh, my, my buddy David, uh, who was oh, on yeah. Game Study Study mm-hmm. Buddies, right? David's a Latino dude and met him in middle school. Um, all this stuff, right? Uh, and so I stopped playing that game because I have lived through several of the events, obviously not on the receiving side, but standing there and seeing these things happen or hearing white people talk this way consistently over and over again my whole life. And I... It, it was reminiscent of things that I've thankfully been able to leave behind, right, in my mm-hmm. life. I, I don't have to grow up or spend time with uh, people who are directly hateful and racist in that way anymore in a way that I was not able to do for, like, 18 years of my life. And I'm, I'm not saying this to be like, oh, poor me, the white guy who had to see white people be racist. Like, that's not that's not what I'm saying. Uh, but I am saying that that it feels like that game, at least for the first two acts, lingers in that space for a long time. And it it feel, felt like to me that it was really putting the gas on the empathy side, which is like it seemed to have. A, and, and Kelly Gonzalez says this, too. Right. It's got that Anglo lens. It's playing to a mm-hmm. white audience and it's playing to a white audience to say, like, can you believe this shit? Right. And uh, yes, I can believe that shit. <laughs> like, absolutely. <laughs> I've seen it happen. Um, you know, I, I you know, I, I don't want to get into details, but yes, I, you know, I can believe that shit. And it didn't feel like it was going at, at the end of act two. I did not feel like, oh, I should be on board for the rest of the thing. Um, and ultimately, like reading the summary of the rest of the thing, I kind of felt feel the same way. Obviously, Kelly Gonzalez has a different relationship to it. Um. But uh, it doesn't feel like it resolves in a way that that goes beyond stereotype for the most part. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and that's sort of I mean, that is that is the broad strokes. That's the takeaway, mm-hmm. right, is that on the one hand for Kelly Gonzalez, there's something very affirming here about having these uh, two brothers, right, these two Latinx brothers and kind of having a story that is centered on them and uh you know, is aware of them as uh, Latinx people, right? And is like interested in trying to tackle a lot of those topics or like what it might mean. And then on the other hand, uh, to have it so frequently fall into, um, can you believe how bad this shit is, right? Like, uh, like here, here is like some person uh, like telling you to go back where you came from. And it's like, I think we get like three different scenes, right? And I'm not saying that that, isn't probably like accurate to the experience, but also like the way that it is uh, being used as like a set piece after set piece after set piece. And then finally, like the way that the game can resolve. uh, uh, And this is kind of wild and interesting. uh, There is no way to keep the brothers together. Like basically like you can, you get to the point at the end where, um, uh, you know, the brothers have like reached a, a pinch point. They've like reached the border or whatever. And uh, you can split up kind, kind of amicably. You can like abandon your brother uh, or you can like try to stick together. Uh, but there is no ending in which they stay together that uh does not end up with them becoming kind of like low key criminals. Like even in the yeah. even in the best instance, like they become sort of like noble outlaws. Yeah, it's fascinating. The, right. the analysis of the end there. Yeah, right. Um, there's also uh, one of the characters can uh, uh, like engage in like a like same sex relationship. Like you can make that choice, but it also is tied to criminality in a weird way. Right. You have to like the the character that you can have this experience with is uh, 
I, I like another like bandito or whatever. Um, mm-hmm. And so like in order to have that, you must also like be playing a you must be playing the character in a way that like makes him basically more OK with being a little bit of a criminal. Um, hmm. And so like what's going on there? Uh, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah, the, the, the big critique, I guess, uh, this is like my summation of something on page 25, right, is that we're seeing like all of this racism, all of this like horrible stuff. Um, but there's very little sense of this discourse as being systemic, right? It's it the game is always approaching it as like, and here's another awful white person, right? There, there's no sense of like a, a culture of racism that like backs it up or enforces it or like provides the ground where this sort of thing happens. Um, and I think the other big topic that comes up in this chapter then is the digital mes- mestizaje. Uh, mm-hmm, which, yeah. Right. Uh, This is and I'm quoting here from page 119 uh, players through digital mestizaje enter a space of tension with previous knowledge as they learn about their character's positionality and subjectivity through navigating a game's narrative. This liminal space opens the possibility for players to identify and empathize with character struggles as they drive the action of the narrative forward. The tensions between knowledge materializing through the space of digital mestizaje may create a subconscious or conscious change within players. The fusion between cultures is continual. Opening spaces of knowledge with the capacity to subvert the socializing effects behind systems of power. So again, a resumption of this idea of like the border or the third or, or kind of a, a, another resonance of that. Yeah. And in conversation with Gloria Anzaldúa, uh, mm-hmm. who was a, a Chicana um, activist and scholar, um, unfortunately never uh, she worked for a number of years, but had some, some significant health issues toward the end of her life. And so worked for a long time to finish her, uh, PhD and never completed it during her lifetime. It was published after, after she died. Um, and hold on, let me look it up. I can't remember what, uh, what the title is. Light in the dark, lose in low escuro. Uh, so, um, uh, that was her kind of extension of these ideas. What, what's being brought up here and the kind of fuel or um, initial conversation around uh, the digital mehistate uh, piece is from Borderlands, La Frontera, uh, which is mm-hmm. her book that she that comes out in the late 80s, I want to say. Um, and it's really important for for what maybe ended up being called third wave feminism. The, the notions of waves of feminism have been kind of resolutely imploded, uh, you know, in, mm-hmm. in um, women's and gender studies broadly. But a key text for that kind of moment of complicating the narratives of feminisms, especially within the United States. And uh, and it brings up the it comes up with the idea of the mestiza. Um, so this kind of idea that sometimes gets read in concert with the um, the the uh, gosh, what is her name? Um, Cyborg Manifesto. I'm just blanking. Donna Haraway. There we go. Mm-hmm. Uh, get, gets read in conversation with the cyborg. Um, so there was something happening in the late 80s that was getting people who were thinking seriously about subjectivity, particularly subjectivities that are ignored or hated or subjugated or oppressed and all those things that we that I just said all together. Lots of people from lots of different positions were kind of working to come up with new terms and language for expressing 
uh, these highly synthetic ideas. It's no mistake that the term intersectionality emerges at the same moment, too, right, from the legal field coming from Kimberly Crenshaw. And so this is another uh, bit of language from that, but that is uh, involved in uh, uh, Chicano culture, that is coming from uh, indigenous American cultures, that is also coming from uh, indigenous uh, Latin American cultures, she comes up in this book, but also worth noting that that Ansel Duo has been critiqued from within the field that she's in conversation with of kind of pulling on a lot of indigenous things as, um, you know, uh, flavor or decoration or conceptual stuff without really having much interest in exploring the where those things originate from as a part of indigenous religious practice or whatever, you know, that Kelly Gonzalez brings that up here. Um, but yeah, so so thinking about – there's something that's happening in the 80s of thinking about what does it mean to be on the borderland, to exist on the borderland between different kinds of being in the world. And uh, Kelly Gonzalez is reaching back to that moment, and, and Anzal Dua has never kind of left the conversation. She's really important for um, this kind of universe of discussion. But going back to that work and kind of thinking through it in the digital era to think about, well – if video games provide the opportunity for some of this stuff, then how does that enact or resurrect or bring forward some of those ideas from uh, Anzal Dua um, to be helpful for us here? So that's where digital mehestahe comes from. Me, me, mes, oh, mestizahe. That's hard, yes. hard for me. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I mean, and that's uh, the chapter is essentially a long read of Life is Strange 2, and the output is is what I've already said, that there are mm-hmm. uh, there are things about this that are very affirming and validating, and also it falls into stereotype uh, in kind of, not not maybe the, the absolute worst ways, but close to some of the most tiresome ways uh, that we've discussed so far. And then that leaves us with a coda called El Futuro es Pixelado. Uh, and there's... You know, a couple things that happen here. One is kind of thinking of a big picture, right? Is it's sort of thinking about the future, right? Like what is, where do we go from here? Um, and so we actually get a pretty handy uh, rundown of just kind of like a bunch of like Latinx produced games, right? Like here is, here is where <laughs> yeah. like uh, developers in Latin America are producing these games. Here they are like, you know, uh, quite a few that I've heard of some that I haven't. Um, uh and talking about that and then ending on this like fascinating little historical anecdote about uh, the fact that Lara Croft at one point was going to be Lara Cruz, like a Latin American munitions dealer or something. Yeah. Uh, and then throughout the course of the development of the first Tomb Raider game, uh, they made her white and British and they made her a like Indiana Jones style explorer. Uh but there the 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 Lara Cruz that could have been right gestures at uh for for Kelly Gonzalez right this kind of uh pa- the road not taken right like the representations mm-hmm. that have yet to be uh made yeah i i think i although you know the there is this coda here i actually feel like the concluding paragraph of the book is the concluding paragraph from the previous chapter can i just read oh. it oh oh yes yes let me flip to it. This is one uh, 152. Uh, this is what, you know, one big paragraph. Uh, 
I look to digital mestizaje as a tool for gamers and scholars to amplify how we perceive Latinx's in games and insert more nuance for the digital media we consume. If players were given opportunities to challenge their cultural perceptions through ideas like digital mestizaje, then perhaps we might have a video game community that invites difference versus one in which difference is met with hostility and a lack of empathy. In addition, I invite all other communities to see how digital mestizaje can allow you to see us Latinxes and to learn about our histories, theories, and ways of seeing that can work to overthrow a white-centric focus in the production of video games and scholarship. Uh, And the reason I say I feel like that's the actual end of the book or the actual concluding paragraph is that it ends with an invitation. Right. Mm-hmm. The the coda I think is like perfectly fine and 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 useful and weirdly enough feels like uh, kind of another intro right like mm. you can imagine a world in which the intro were different and this were the first seven pages or whatever of it, um, but I feel like that that invitation the the appeal to empathy the invitation to use the key term to think about other issues that to me feels like the takeaway from the book right which is like mm-hmm. we know where video games are now video games could be different um other worlds are always possible here's a key term that'll help you think through that and it's maybe an obligation right for us to think more intently as a scholarly field about what kind of games we're engaging with and um how latinx people are represented within them Um, Mm -hmm. because you know like we talked about at the beginning of the episode there's just not that many books about it right at this point right Mm -hmm. yeah well that's the book there we go. Can, can I can I have one um, light complaint? I've had many uh, commentaries over the course of the episode, as we do, because it's your responsibility when you read a book is to talk about the things you agree with and the things you disagree with. Uh, I don't think I have any strong complaints so far, but this is a complaint. Can I make a complaint? Uh, I guess I'll allow it. Yes. Robin DeAngelo is like the interlocutor to explain how racism works in this book. And I, I think that I don't agree with that. Hmm. I don't think that you should use white fragility as like the core text to explain how racism functions within the United States. I think it is insufficient to the task in front of in front of us as like a society. Yeah. To to uh, accept D'Angelo's explanations, which are good in that they point out that race is systemic, but are insufficient in that they, you know, having read the book that they do not identify where racism comes from, which is like actions and practices and material instances of violence against human beings. Mm -hmm. So that's my one complaint because I I wish that maybe that, that part of the citational apparatus were a little different, but if Kelly Gonzalez thinks that, that that's, that that's sufficient or does the thing, you know, it's not my book. I I don't care. And I'm also like, not the boss of who talks about racism. (laughs) Right. So it's like that is a okay. But that's that is a that is a light a light complaint um in uh in an episode where I, I, I enjoyed I enjoyed reading the book. I thought it was fun. Yeah. I thought it was yeah. helpful in particular. It was. I mean it was it is one of those things where uh sometimes you grab a book and you're like, damn, yeah, there are no other books about this, huh? Yeah. Like or like Which is like, you know, is exactly the point, right? Right. It, the fact that we can have that feeling is like, uh oh. Yeah. Uh, so what are we going to read next? Do we need to? No, do we? Did con- we already decide? We did not. I think. Do we need to confer off off microphone? 
I don't have any books right here on my desk, which is how I've made <laughs> right. this decision. We do. We should confer off. You should get to choose this time. So, okay. Because I chose this one. So All right. You, you, uh, you know, go through, go through your sheets, mm-hmm. go through your documents, uh, consult the sages. You let yeah. me know. Okay. I, we will let you know via various social media channels once we've decided on next month's game study study buddies. Mm-hmm. Uh, so until then, do we have a, do we have a, how do we end this show? Do we have I an outro? Well, you can go to patreon.com slash range touch <laughs> to support the show. Uh, it takes a long time to read books. Did y'all know that? Mm-hmm. Did you know it takes a long time and we read a bunch of other books and we make a bunch of other podcasts. So if you enjoyed this conversation, um, I'm sure you will enjoy the conversations we have on just King things or on shelved by genre, a uh, similar kind of approach, although not about, you know, academic nonfiction. Um, I, my book is out. I, I need to promote that every single time my book is out. It has been out for a while, but, uh, it's a, a, like a tight $20, you know, mm-hmm. it's like what? Two chili dogs <laughs> in a soda. Maybe you just know? the chili dogs. This is me appealing directly to, to Sonic the Hedgehog to mm-hmm. buy my book. Mm-hmm. It's like two chili dogs are like a third of a pair of shoes. <laughs> and and like when I say that, Sonic the Hedgehog knows I'm talking about him. But uh, but yeah, it's called The World is Born from Zero. Uh, and uh, I try to mention it as often as I can because I would like to always sell more books because I'd like people to read it. It's 20 bucks. Maybe give it to somebody for their birthday. Of course, we don't spend any money on advertising. So if you tell someone about the show, that's how they learn about the show. So if you enjoyed listening to it and had a good time, please let us know. Or in, Well, actually, don't let us know. Let them know. But mm-hmm. you can also let us know by going to Apple Podcasts and uh, leaving a five-star review. And if you leave a five-star review, I might read it on the show. Let me look at a, a, a recent one because we, we kind of ran dry for a while. And I said, y'all got to give us new ones. And uh, we got one since the last one. So I'm begging you, go to Apple Podcasts, rate us five stars, and then leave a funny review. So I have something to read here. I got one, thankfully. This is from Sam Ratner. Okay? Okay. Here's the five stars. Phew. Here's the review. Why did Mike Davis call his book City of Courts and not the SoCal is predicated on its exclusions? (laughs) That's, That's from a listener. Yep. You know, that's not from a random person. It's a real one. Only, only a listener would read that. That's a good one. That's funny. Leave us a fun review. I'll probably read it on the show. At some point, we'll be back in a month with the next episode of the show. Um, and uh, we don't know what that is, but we will let you know that. You can go to twitter.com slash ranged touch in order to follow us there and learn what we're doing. Patreon.com slash ranged touch. We're also on co-host and on TikTok. TikTok, no, TikTok at range touch on TikTok. I've tried to do this before and it doesn't work. You can't type mm-hmm. a thing in at range touch. I'm sure, I'm sure Michael's over there like stitching things. You know, I mean? people are talking about psychoanalysis and Michael's over there. And he stitches in. He goes, actually, that's wrong. <laughs> Lacan said this. I should be doing that. I should be building our base <laughs> there by getting in slap fights about, about psychoanalysis. You should. Oh you don't have enough to do i think i think that's that's the problem with you michael you don't have enough obligations in your life yeah that's right <laughs> this is one we need to we gotta invent an obligation for you <laughs> all right so uh we'll be back in the month thanks so much for listening to this episode we always appreciate that you spend your time with us we will be back with another episode on some other thing in about a month hey michael uh what's uh what's the the outro uh, uh the social is predicated on its exclusions <laughs>